We all know Google, Apple, Amazon, and others are constantly searching our locations on our phones and our web search histories to serve us the right ads. But what happens when a church does that? We'll talk about that and a whole lot more on this week's Corey Truax Show. I've been trying to convince my friends who think our phones are listening to us. I've been trying to convince them that's not the case. They're not listening to you, but what they're actually doing is a whole lot more scary. That our phones, are because all of the apps are linked together, we, it knows not only what you've been Googling, but what you spent money on and what you put on your credit card versus your debit card. It knows what other phones you're in proximity to. And so it knows you probably had a conversation with this person who was searching this and watching these videos. They probably told you about that product. And so that's how it, that ad gets to your phone. That's, uh, it's actually much more intriguing and intricate than them just listening to you. And there's a story uh, in that vein regarding a church I want to share with you. In just a minute. First, welcome to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. Let me take you behind the scenes of the show very quickly. Four, five years now, four years, uh, five now, I've been going to the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting. And when it was in Birmingham and Nashville and I'm driving there, it's no big deal to take my podcasting kit, a suitcase full of equipment to take to my hotel and do a show while I'm there on the road. I found when going to Dallas and Phoenix, where I needed to fly out there, it's just not, it, it is not feasible. Did you know that the F, uh, TSA finds having a computer battery with like an ion battery in your suitcase that you're going to put on the plane is apparently a threat to national security? And my podcast equipment is heavy, so I have to carry it around the Dallas and Phoenix airports. And so, taking you behind the scenes here, this show is being recorded many days before it's going to be on his radio or you podcast folks will get it. So we're going to do some things today that are largely not time sensitive and uh, just some topics I've been thinking about. We're actually not even going to start with that church and big data story. I just wanted to give you a preview of it. What else am I supposed to tell you? Yes, I am the pa- I'm the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church is full of just awesome folks that I really dig. And if you ever want to come out and see us, we're there on 10... 10- where we are there at 10.30 on Sunday mornings, and you are invited. I'd like to have you. I want to get to that church and big data story, but here is one thing in the news that actually is relevant to the to the moment we're in that will probably still be relevant by the time you listen to this. The story, the, let's go with attempted sui- the attempted assassination. The attempted assassination of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh is a much bigger deal then your typical media is giving credence or giving gravity. That's a better word, G- giving gravity to it. I was recently talking to my soon-to-be bride about the seeming instability of the moment that we're in and how when we allow news and social media to be the lens by which or through which we see the world, it can feel really unsteady. Of course, this is one of the reasons why it's very important for the believer to see the world through a lens of Scripture, that God is sovereign over all things. There's nothing out of his control. But I remember in that conversation with her trying to bring some perspective that it it actually does feel really out of control right now. 
but it's re- it's important to remember that when when her, my, my parents were my age, I guess they're a little bit younger than me. Uh, that the timeline's getting messed up in my head about when they were born and when all this happened. The, that we actually went through assassinations. We had a president of the United States shot and killed. I mean, it, it brought the world to a standstill for a bit. It wasn't long after that an attor- attorney general was shot, that the most prominent civil rights figure on April 4th shot in that motel in Memphis, Martin Luther King Jr. And I said to her, it's, it's at least in some ways oddly comforting that we haven't gone into the time of assassinations. Things feel unstable, but no one's shooting at each other. And then I see the story on my screen. There was a young man arrested nearby Brett Kavanaugh's house, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's house, where this young man from California straight up says he was he was there to kill him. He was armed. He had tools to break in. He was there to assassinate a Supreme Court justice. I had so many thoughts. One was we can't handle it. Our national stability is so tenuous. I I took that moment and prayed for every national and state political leader not by name because I don't know all their names, but just ask the Lord for safety and stability. Don't don't let any of them get assassinated. We, we are too razor's edge, hair trigger, pick the analogy you want. It's too tenuous right now. No one needs to die. I had the thought that a lot of other conservative types like me had. that The rhetoric, it's too hot, too high. I mean, I, I recently did an episode on everyone being responsible for themselves. This young man, I can't remember his name, 25 or 26 years old, who came out from California. He did that. He got the gun. He made the plan. He's responsible. And at the same time, it's not good that Chuck Schumer was saying in March of 2020 that Gorsuch, and the, that's how the sound goes, Gorsuch is how he said his name, and Kavanaugh, you've released the whirlwind and you won't know what hits you. Yeah, it's bad. The same way it's it's bad when former presidents use language like that when they were the president. It's, it's bad when politicians ratchet up rhetoric because they're in a country of very mentally unstable people. We we don't need voices on the air doing hysterics. We don't need voices on the air saying that women are about to die because of potentially overturning Roe. It sent a seemingly mentally unstable guy into a into a tailspin of wanting to kill the a Supreme Court justice. I was tempted, this is my third thought, I had, I was tempted to go back and grab the audio from about a month ago where I said on a special podcast, little bonus episode I did, this is dangerous, the leak, the leak of the Roe versus Wade decision, the leak of Dobbs versus the other place. I can't remember the name of the case. This is dangerous. It actually puts justice's health and safety and lives at risk. Because people do get so hot about this topic and the language and rhetoric is so elevated, we're putting people's lives at risk. I said that a month ago and I was right. We very literally had a threat to someone's life. And I don't know who leaked that document. I don't know who leaked that decision. 
But if my instincts are right, this is exactly what they wanted. They wanted fear and intimidation to change a justice's mind. This story is bigger than it's getting than it's getting credit for. Imagine what would have happened and the instability we would have been thrown into. Something we should be praying against and also being people working toward bringing stability, diminishing the temperature. I think I only had one or two more thoughts about that Kavanaugh story. I heard in the interview with this potential assassin, one of the things he said was he was looking for something to give his life purpose. He wanted wanted meaning out of life. And one of the ways he thought he might get it is assassinate. So the young man, I mean, he's a grown man, but in his mid-20s. It made me think of the 18 or 19-year-old in Buffalo, though. In his manifesto, he had found purpose, in part because he was desperately looking for one. He had found purpose in this type of white nationalism and what he saw as its, its virtue, its rightness, and he found something on which to base his life. I have been saying for seven years on this show that we have a national crisis of loneliness. I think we have a concurrent crisis of meaninglessness. I'm almost positive in the last year or so, I did some show content on how we were all nihilists now. The the philosophy that there's ultimately just, there's no meaning in anything. There's no purpose in anything. That nihilism is the natural product from our relativism. When everything is just relatively meaningful, we find out, well, then nothing means anything. If marriage means everything, then it means nothing. If gender means everything, well, then it means nothing. There's, if there is no right and wrong, then there is no anything at all. And we end in this nihilism and so in a, in a de-Christianized culture, I know what I'm seeing here. I'm seeing generations of young people who have no idea where to find any meaning. I've pinpointed that on the show for you this way. We used to tell men, young men, here is how you will in part find meaning. By the way, this is not necessarily fully biblical. This is, what I'm about to say is good and true. It's also incomplete. So hear that. I am not about to tell you the centerpiece of what a man is. I'm telling you this is part of what a man is, and Western civilization has used this Christian thinking as a civilizing tool for young men. Saying to young men, here's how you get meaning. Make your mom and dad proud. Work hard, make something of yourself. You want to be a man? Find a woman, love her, provide for her, take care of her. You want to find meaning? Have some kids. Inculcate in them those values of hard work and sacrifice that you lived yourself. Live your, give yourself a legacy. Now, that's not the centerpiece of what a man is. That's Now, a, a Jesus-following man with a, a certain type of life, I mean, not, not all of those steps are going to be relevant for everybody, so I'm not putting a burden on you, sir, if not all of those things are true of you. I, but I am saying this. There was, a, there was a cultural meaning in serving your role to everyone else as a man. And so then we go to young men and say, 
masculinity is toxic. You have no responsibility to anybody. And if you try to, you're being toxic. You're being overbearing the more you, the more you try to, to lead or take control of any given thing. And so we have a, not just men, but an entire generation desperately, desperately looking for meaning. Some of them will find it in godless, damaging philosophies. And some will find it in this idea, this notion, oh, I'll get famous by killing this person. There's so much there in the, in the Kavanaugh story. To sum it up, and I'll take the first break, we'll come back and talk about this church using big data ta- tactics like Google does. Ultimately, this was the goal of the person who leaked it. That's just giving you the rundown. They wanted the intimidation. Let's pray for peace because I know we can't handle it. We cannot handle an assassination. We're on very shaky ground as it is. Let's not be like leaders like Schumer who t- who talks a, a very potentially violent game. And let us be cautious with our young people and what they consume, knowing that there is a crisis of meaning out in the country. And let, let us be people, salt and light, sharing that we actually have the real meaning, the real meaning of life, glorifying God and enjoy, enjoying Him forever, fulfilling the mission that He left for us. We'll talk about that church and big data story and a whole lot more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. More than 30,000 churches have signed up for a data service called Glue. And I think this will divide the audience in some very interesting ways. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you listen to podcasts and right here on his radio talk. You can find me, your trying-to-be-humble host, on where? Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. It's easy to find me there. You can also email the show. Anything you think needs to be covered on the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. I hope that you will get in touch there or on the socials. I say this could divide the audience just in this way. Some of you are going to hear this story and go, mm, yucky, I don't like it. I don't like this is, this is happening. And I will admit there will be others like me who I, I don't have as much skepticism. I kind of like this stuff, but let me say this. I don't hold to this tightly. If you if you think you got a good argument that says, hey, Corey, this is not good. Let me show you why this is not a good thing. I'll hear it. I'm open. Let's talk about it. But here we go. From the Christian Post, the headline is what I just told you. 30,000 churches have signed up with this service called Glue. Glue is spelled G-L-O-O. They are a small company that uses personal data and online activity to target people who might be receptive to becoming church members. And a lot of churches are signing up with them. Glue brands itself, this is according to Christian Post, as the, quote, the ways, excuse me, is a personal growth platform that seeks to reshape the ways that churches, ministries, and people connect with each other. Now, I won't give away too much here, but in one of my many roles, I am very familiar with data companies like these. Let me just give you an example. 
you can go to companies and say, we bought from, from well, how's a, what's a good way to do this? All right, let's do this politically. So Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, he goes to someone who was previously ran for president, or he goes to, oh, got it, here we go. So Ron DeSantis goes to a guy like Ben Shapiro or Glenn Beck and says, hey, I want to buy access to all of your Daily Wire subscribers, your newsletter people, and to The Blaze. I want that too. How much will you charge me to get the email addresses of those people? And then Daily Wire and Blaze make a deal with the DeSantis campaign, and they he buys all those email addresses. He can go to a digital marketing company and say, I have these email addresses. How can we use them? And the digital marketing company will come and say, well, we can go out and search for all the devices where those email addresses are signed in. So consider what your phone is telling you. You're using your Gmail account to be signed into your Facebook, your Instagram, your Twitter. Maybe you have an email account that is associated with your Capital One credit card or your Discover credit card. Any app that you're signed in with your email address the digital marketing companies, they can find you. The cookies on the browser, they can find you. They can find when, if you're signed in as Gmail and you're going to CNN.com, the advertisers know you're there because your email address is signed into the browser. We know where you are. And so you can serve up ads to the email addresses of the people that you want. So I now know I've got the email address of these Daily Wire and Blaze subscribers. I want to show them a very specific message. Maybe you buy an email list from the NRA. I want to show them a very specific gun message. So I want you, digital marketing company, to go out and find wherever they're on the web and show them my ad. That's how these work. And so Glue is just another one of those. They're just doing it with the churches. Back to the story. Here's what Christian Post writes. The company explained in a recent Wall Street Journal report that it wants churches to be empowered with big data, extremely large data sets that can be analyzed to reveal patterns, trends, and associations. The goal is to target people in the same way that big brands like Amazon, Google, and Netflix use. They use that data to target consumers with goods and services. This is another one of those where I don't like people think my phone's listening to me because I'm getting ads for dog food. Well, did you Google the local Humane Society? You, yeah, of course. Well, dog food companies want to advertise to people who recently looked for Humane Society. Of course, there's, there's lots of reasons that you, your name could have ended up on the list to getting that ad. And that's what this company says. We want to use these tools of big data to target people, get advertisements in front of their face for a church or a small group or a Bible study, something like that. Quote, uh, we believe this is the right thing to do. Glue has committed it to doing the right way. That's what the, a company spokesperson said. So Glue's clients have free and premium members. The average cost for a church is $1,500 for the year. That is dirt cheap for access to digital marketing. I'll give you just a couple other lines from this story. They go through a church called Westside Family Church. They are in Kansas City, Kansas. They use Glue as a service, and they said, uh, this church is committed to going out at whatever cost to find the one lost sheep that needs help. There are a lot of people who are in pain and isolated, and if you don't come to church, well, the church will come to you through the services of Glue. 
I'm, I think I'm going to, yeah, let's give you that. Glue, in their, in their study, what they're finding from the, their internet browsing history metadata, they're finding that within five miles of that church, they predict 25% of marriages are at risk of divorce, 26% of people are at risk of opioid addiction, and at least 3% of households have somebody diagnosed with some kind of anxiety or depression. That last one's the easiest one because, again, if your email address is associated with your CVS app and your CVS app is what you use to go pick up your prescriptions and you have an Adderall prescription for your ADD or you have a Lexapro subscription for your depression, well, we can pick that up. The metadata can comb through that and find that you go to this CVS at this interval to pick up your, your meds. For the divorce number, if someone is Googling marriage counseling or someone is, ah, well, if, there's, if there's a married couple, but we find that there's activity on an eHarmony site or a Tinder app, we know that marriage is in trouble, right? There's lots of different cross-sections of data we can use. And what this church, Westside, did in uh, Kansas City is when they found those things to be true. Like, we, we found these people on these devices seem to be having marriage trouble. We're going to push an advertisement to them for our marriage counseling center or for a series on, of marriage sermons that we have coming up. For these households that seem to have a depression issue, we're going to push to them an ad for our counseling center, our, like our therapy, and maybe a, a sermon series coming up on this or that. And that's what this company does. I am open to all opinions on this. I just want to toss it out there. And get your opinion at CoreyTruactShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruactShow at gmail.com, or look for me, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. And give me your thoughts. How do you feel about a church using big data to target people with ads for their services or for membership or to or for coming to their church? I can be convinced otherwise, but I just I land here. The internet's a tool. Data is a tool. The unbelievers use it for their purposes. I don't know why we wouldn't use it. At some level, I, I don't consider it any different than like a microphone. The microphones were probably, I don't know who actually invented the microphone, but I would imagine the people who fine-tuned them for singing instead of the spoken word did so that so they could hear Elvis sing better or some other secular music. But I get to use one now. It's a good tool. Then I get to speak Jesus things and do theology into one. I think I feel the same way about big data, but I could be convinced otherwise. All right, so if you have a differing opinion, that is Show at gmail.com or find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Next, on my list of things I just collected for us to do together today, I started realizing we have a very weird, we have a schizophrenic view of age in the United States. I picked that up during the gun debates after the shootings in Buffalo and the one in Uvalde, where there was this desire to raise the age to 21, not necessarily something I'm opposed to, I guess. I just wish we had... What I want is there to be a consistency for what 18 and what 21 is. Very quietly, I don't know if anyone even noticed, if my audience is not a smoking audience, maybe you didn't notice. Like a year ago... Congress raised the age for cigarettes. It was 18 my whole life. And then a couple, I think it was two years ago, they just raised the age of 21. No one batted an eye. Like, 
We're going to match our alcohol age with our cigarette age. And as a culture generally, we have been vacillating in, ex- uh, that's not a good word, extending. We have been extending the idea of adolescence. As opposed to most cultures worldwide for all of history, we have a pretty pretty clear line about when you become a man. You're a man now. You're a woman now. That's what the bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah was for Jewish folks. There's other cultures worldwide that do it around that time where you might be a young man at 13, but we're calling you a man now. There's no such thing as adolescence. But in the Western world, we've stretched it until your mid-20s. Like it's, I, mean, I don't want to be mean about anything here, but I mean, we we have 25-year-olds on their parents' health, medical insurance. I know folks older than that on their parents' phone plans. Now, granted, I get that. It's just financial. Um, it's, it's I get it. Like there's a, there's a financial deal there, the more phones, but like it is a little weird for a bunch of grown households to all be on the same phone plan. My point here being, we play with age, and we don't we can't seem to agree on what on when people become adults and when they should be able to do things. Like it seems like everyone's saying 18 is too young for major decisions. So you can't drink, it's too risky. You shouldn't smoke, it's too bad for your health. Now we think you shouldn't have a gun at 18. Yeah, it's definitely too young. But then we say you should definitely vote though. I mean, you think about 18-year-olds for all the same reasons that you don't want them to buy a gun, for all the same reasons you don't want them to make a decision about drinking or smoking, for the same reason we should be saying, yeah, you guys shouldn't vote. You don't know what you're doing yet. You're not an adult. You're not responsible. You don't own anything. You're not responsible for anything. We also allow them to take on insane amounts of debt, not just in college, but like credit card companies target 18-year-olds. I kind of like this one, but I like that we let 18-year-olds join the military. I like that option for a young man to get some discipline and some to grow up. At the same time, here I am, I'm saying 18 is too young to make major life decisions like deciding to start drinking or smoking. But I am also like, all right, but yeah, you should probably join the military. It's a, skin of, a schizophrenic view of age. And then we have this, I mean, take it further to a kind of a related topic. There's a subculture, it's small, but a subculture of the country that thinks 18 is too young to own a gun, but six years old, you definitely know if you were born in the wrong body. And at 12, we didn't, man, you definitely know if we should just start chopping body parts off of you and be giving you hormone, uh, hormone suppressants. But or what are they called? Puberty blockers, whatever it is. But you definitely, you're not old enough to, to have a gun. So I, it's just all these, all of these things together. It's another one of those. I think I'd like to hear from you. What is the age for all those? And should they all match? Should it match that we need the same age for alcohol, tobacco, joining the military, voting? Having a gun. Do all of those things need to be unified? I think I think I lean towards yes. That's particularly hard to do with the voting age because I think it's the twenty sixth, seventh. One of the amendments around that area, 25, 26, 27, somewhere in there, 
we actually have in the Constitution that the voting age is 18. So we'd have to amend the Constitution to make them all match. That's a trade I would make, I think. Oh, not just I think. I'd absolutely make that trade. If we raise the voting age to 21, heck, I'd raise it some more through the Constitution. We'll go ahead and raise the age on a bunch of other stuff, too. All right. You know the drill. Show at gmail.com or anywhere on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Would love to know your thoughts on our schizophrenic view of age. Now, which of these have like seven things I can pick from? Which of these can I do in less than four minutes? That one. So, here's some cool news. The Social Security actuaries, all the very smart people who do math at a high level, they said, hey, we thought you were going to run out of money in 14 years in Social Security. Uh, we're wrong. You're going to run out of money in 14 years. So they raised it from 13 years to 14 years. We had one more year of money than we thought. Now, of course, that's fake, too. We ran out of money in Social Security a long time ago, and it's it's been a patchwork and a fake system ever since. Just always... These kinds of things are the types of policy I'm actually into. Like, if government was actually about these things, I think I'd want to run for something. If we were actually about solving economic and fiscal policies, that's what our government did, I think I'd want to be involved. But we don't do much of that anymore. And I think it's it's irresponsible. It's wrong. It shows how immature our leaders are that no one talks about this. I can look at my analytics on the podcast, and I, I can see who my who my listeners are. Now, my radio listeners, it seems, are, are a little bit older than my podcast folks. But, hey, podcast people, you haven't thought about it enough? This is a real problem for you. I dare you. You're in your 30s right now. You're in your 20s. Stop letting the direct deposit just hit your bank account. Go look at your pay stub. Get the digital copy and see how much Social Security tax you pay in a year. It's a lot, guys. You're paying a lot into Social Security. And your government is saying outright, you will not have it. If you are 30 years old right now, we are saying by the time the program, the time you're 43, when you're still 20 years from retirement, the program will be bankrupt. And it's taking a lot of money from you right now. It's unspeakably irresponsible that no political leader will touch this. No one will talk about it. When we started Social Security, the, the life expectancy was before you were eligible. I think life expectancy was 62 or 63 back then. And you weren't eligible for it until you were 64 or 65. Like It was very limited. We were saying... A lot of times, widows and widow- widowers, those who got too old to work, the, and the few that lived that long, they needed to be taken care of. And I would argue there's there's even, I think, some way to argue that biblically. We could argue if that's a, a full faithful understanding of the scriptures, but in a way to under, to take care of your, your truly elderly and those who can't take care of themselves. For a government to do that centrally, for a people group to do that in a central way. That's obviously not what it is anymore. I think about my dad and mom. They have, they have a lot of years left. And they're very soon to be Social Security eligible. I, I think about men in my church, men and women in my church, that are very close to retirement age. And are they just seem young to me. They seem quite capable. They're going to be working for years. It's obviously time and long overdue to reform this system. And as I have long said... Actually, it's been a long time since I talked about this, and I, 
I want this idea to, to become more popular, so I'm going to try to turn you all into my evangelist for my idea. Here's what I think we should do. January 1 next year, we say to everybody, let's go 45 and above, 45 years and above, nothing changes for you. You're going to pay the same amount of tax, Social Security tax you always were, same rates, and you're going to get your full benefits. We're not going to change anything. We say to everybody 20 years old and younger, you will never get a dollar from Social Security. It's over. We're not going to have this program anymore. You're going to have to plan for your own retirement. But good news, you'll never pay a dime in Social Security taxes. You're about to keep all of that money to plan for your own retirement. And then for everybody between the ages of 21 and 45, it's a graduated system. So someone like me, 36, maybe say it this way. From here on out, your, your Social Security tax rate is cut in half. You will only pay 50% from here on out. But Corey, you need to plan that you're only going to get 50% of your benefit. Or because I've been paying for so long at a full rate, maybe you're only going to get 70% of the benefit you were going to get. Now plan around that. Because it's, it's wrong to not take care of older folks and folks even in their 40s who have planned on having Social Security. It'd be wrong to take it from them. Let's not do that. But let's take a very long, deliberate, 40-year process of eliminating a program that we already know is bankrupt. And of course, that means we're probably going to have to borrow quite a bit of money to fund it. And I know Social Security might be the most boring topic for a lot of you young folks, but guys, this is the important stuff government is supposed to figure out. A lot of the other stuff is just culture war things, and people don't know, don't know how to war anywhere outside the government anymore. All right, I could do that when I said in four or five minutes, and I did. When we return, I do have some thoughts on... Oh, gosh, a lot. Uh, the January 6th commission. I have a fun YouTube clip I want to play for you. Lots of stuff to do. We'll do that and more when you come back for the final segment of the Corey Chuak Show, wherever you find podcasts and right here on his radio talk. It has been a long time since we did something on the show just for the fun of it. And if there's ever been an episode with the opportunity to do something that's not time-sensitive, it's this one, so let's just have some fun together with something that a listener sent me somewhat recently. His, recently, his name is Anthony, and so to Anthony, thank you for sending me this. It is the exact thing I, I needed. It's just good comedy. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, so uh, let's start here. There's a large group of people with uh, an eschatology, those who think about the end of times, very differently than I do. I think most of them are brothers and sisters. I think they're in the faith. They're just very confused. And there's a guy on YouTube that is very confused. He calls himself a prophet. He's he's picking up on all of the all the hints that the devil or the Lord, one of the two, is sometimes very confused on his channel, that is being dropped. All of the hints in government and pop culture and Music and movies, all the hints of the coming Antichrist. And if you if you happen to know my eschatology, I've talked about it some on the show. I don't actually think there is one of those. Like there's not a, a coming figure that will unite the world under one world governance. I think that's a improper reading of that concept. And if you want me to get in depth, you can email me at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. Now, this one I'm going to play for you just for fun. This came out in 2012. It just was the summer of Carly Rae Jepsen. She had a big song called Call Me Maybe. 
And this guy, this prophet, this YouTube prophet, says that the Antichrist or God, one or the two, I can't quite figure out which one, left us a hint at the identity of the Antichrist through the song, Call Me Maybe. This is it's just for, guys, just have some fun with me, with this guy. It's also, it is instructive that this isn't how to use the Bible. This isn't how to understand end times prophecy. Let's use this as an absurd an absurd example of how not to read the book of Revelation or think about the end times. I'm not even going to, well, I'll give it to you. His YouTube channel is called Third Eagle Books. I don't know why, Third Eagle Books. And here is his incredible prophecy from Carly Rae Jepsen's Call Me Maybe. So now let's look at the other big viral hit of the summer on YouTube, and that is Call Me Maybe. And there are four very significant phrases in this song. The first one is, hey, I just met you. This is crazy, but here's my number. Call me maybe. So that's the chorus of the song, that one-hit wonder Carly Rae Jepsen. And in that chorus, there's a very important messages that we're getting. Let's look at those four phrases separately and see how God is revealing to us the name of the Antichrist. I can't imagine living in a world like this. Now, remember what he just said there. Let's say God is using Carly Rae Jepsen to reveal the identity of the Antichrist through code. Let's take a look at the code. Hey, I just met you. Now, the I in this case refers to the Antichrist. Of course. By the way, he makes no other argument, none in the video. I've watched the entire video. He just says it. When Carly Rae Jepsen said, hey, I just met you, I refer to the Antichrist for no other reason except he said so. And just meeting you means that he is revealing himself. This is the Antichrist's entrance into the end times. And this is crazy. That's the seven years of tribulation. Remember back in... Of course it is. No argument. Just, oh yeah, this is, uh, Carly Rae Jepsen was singing about a seven-year tribulation. In Daniel chapter number four, King Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy or insane for seven times. Uh, the, I know the prophecy guys love the, the book of Daniel, the prophecy of Daniel. He just referred to Daniel chapter four, just a good Bible skill for you. It's always important to realize what you're reading. And in the first, I think it's seven chapters of Daniel, could be six, you're getting historical narrative. It's just stories that you've all heard about Daniel being, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being taken into Babylon and not eating the king's meat, but becoming quite strong and favored. And then Daniel moving up in the government and being told not to pray, but he does. And so he gets thrown in the lion's den. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not being, uh, not, not bowing down to that statue, all that happening. And in the Nebuchadnezzar story, there's no, there's no prophecy about it. It's just historical narrative about something, hap- something happening. Then midway through the book, it switches to prophecy. And there's some very cryptic, sometimes not so cryptic prophecies after that. So when you're reading your Bible, don't be like this guy and try to use historical narrative to make a prophecy about a Carly Rae Jepsen song that came out several thousand years later. He lives among the beasts and eats grass. The beasts that he lives among are the two beasts of the Revelation, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Those are the seven years of insanity, and this is when the Antichrist is going to reveal himself during those seven years. But here's my number. So now we're on to the third line. 
hey, I just met you. I, the Antichrist, just met you. And this is seven years of tribulation crazy. Here's my number. And of course, I think it should be obvious to you what the Antichrist number is. His number is 666. It's not true. I think Pastor Doug, my big brother, he, he probably gave the clearest exposition on understanding the number uh, in any sermon I've ever heard. If you're interested in that explanation, I'd love to give it to you. Show at gmail.com. And he is not talking here about a telephone number. He is talking here about his number of the beast, which he is going to give to every one of us. That's what he means. So when Carly Rae Jepsen said, here is my number, it wasn't a phone number. It was the Antichrist putting his 666 on all of us. When he says, here is my number. And the last phrase is really the most interesting. So call me, maybe. Now he is not saying call me on the telephone. What the Antichrist is saying here is, Oh, ho, ho. the Antichrist is saying it. So God was talking earlier, but now it's the Antichrist. I think you're confused, sir. My name is Maybe. Call me Maybe. Now what's interesting is that Nostradamus also called the Antichrist Mabus. Is there a connection between Mabus and Maybe? I don't know. Maybe. So these two words... Okay, so I'm going to leave that be. He literally just... That's that's it. He, he's found it. Carly Rae Jepsen left for some reason. The Lord chose her to reveal the Antichrist. You know what? Let's stay on YouTube. Anthony, thank you for that. I love stuff like that. It's also kind of sad, right? Because it's a misunderstanding of Scripture, and it leads you to insanity. There, I went down a rabbit hole on that guy's channel. There's a lot of insane prophecy stuff, and it's kind of funny if you just need a laugh. Well, stick to YouTube. Um, I I pulled this because where did I hear it? I I don't think any of you sent this to me. I think I heard this on a news uh, segment, maybe on NPR. Um, it's Alexandria Ocasio Cortez talking about democracy. So here is AOC, same intellect level of the guy we were just listening to, making a point that I want to respond to because she's so profoundly wrong, but not just a dunk on her, but because she's making a point that a lot of people. I think they mistakenly think is correct. So I'd love for us, the Corey Truax Show listeners and me, uh, capable of explaining the mistake. So here is the imitable Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat from Brooklyn. This is a lot more than just voting harder. Um, and it also... That sound in the background is because she apparently lives in poverty and there's some kind of giant, I don't know, railroad going behind her or something? Cuts to the basic structure of our democracy, uh, if you can call it that. We can't call it that. Very important. I need. I want everyone to hear me say this. We are not a democracy. Democracies are terrible. The founders called them terrible. Also, Canada, Israel, Germany, France, and their parliamentary systems, those are not democracies. Democracies are terrible systems where the majority rules and there's no protection for minorities whatsoever. Everybody, like, we have failed our civics. Your, if your kids think we live in a democracy, we got a problem. Teach your kids. We don't live in a democracy. Democracies are chaotic and no protections. We live in a republic. And so she says you can't call what we have a democracy. Correct, madam. And that's a good thing. Because when you have a presidency that's not determined by a popular vote, when you have a Senate 
where million, tens of millions of people more can vote for one candidate, one party, rather one party, and still be in the minority, where even in the House of Rep. Let's stop there on the Senate, because the Senate was originally, uh, originally designed not to represent the people. That might make you uncomfortable. Technically, if you're in South Carolina with me right now, Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott are not supposed to represent you. That's not their job. They're supposed to represent South Carolina as a state. The House of Representatives represents you, the person. But you, the person, might want to do something hostile to the concept of the state. We, the people, might rise up and want the federal government to take over states. And so the Senate is there as a bulwark against the passions of people because people in large groups can do very destructive and dumb things. The Senate is not there to represent us. It's there to represent the concept of statehood against the federal government. Representatives that's supposed to represent our population um, that it gets gerrymandered to all hell once in every once every 10 years in order to ensure an outsized minority. Yeah, I'm not a fan of gerrymandering either. Gerrymandering happens in both parties. I don't know how to fix it. I'd love to have congressional districts that were not made up of such ideological uh, conformity that there was there's so much homogeneity homogeneity I can't say the word it's homogenous or there's only like 60 districts out of 435 that are at all competitive and I mean if you're talking about single digit competitive it probably is like 40 or 45 districts that's not good I don't know how to fix it but yeah we, we're gerrymandered and that's a problem rule and voice in both the house the senate and the presidency it is becoming increasingly difficult for people to defend the stance that we live in a democracy. That's good, because we don't. It should be difficult to claim something that isn't true. And a true one. And what the real truth of the matter is, is... You know what, that's enough of her. That's not a true one. We're not supposed to be a democracy. And if you would do me a favor and teach your kids that, and your nephews and nieces and grandkids and great-grandkids that, we are a republic. And that's a superior form of government. All right, let's do this one to finish. The, the the top of the show, we did something that was more time sensitive, that this Kavanaugh story, this potential assassination is a bigger deal than it's being made out to be. But there is something else happening in the moment that I think is worth uh, talking about just to give you some clarity on. In prime time, this week, this week that just passed, there was a big congressional hearing that not a ton of people watched when you look at the ratings, but it was, you know, it's it's out there. It's, it's making a big, uh, it's making something of a splash. This uh, panel in Congress that supposedly was supposed to study what happened on January 6th in 2021 in that uh, attack on or that, that, let's go with riot. That's the word I prefer. That riot on the Capitol. I'm just going to, give you my thesis and why I think it's true. I find these people to be laughable. I laugh at them. Not that because of what happened on January 6th wasn't bad. It was very, very bad. These people in Congress, though? Yeah. I just, I'd laugh in their faces. It's so obvious what they're doing. They're, <laughs> they're doing prime time hearings. So not during normal congressional times, but specifically trying to get on TV 
right after the primary season, going up to midterms. Oh, and you're going to do six of these, six big public spectacle hearings. You brought in a TV producer to make them more entertaining. This is obviously a campaign event, and you're not serious about this. If you were, If we were serious about it, There'd be an internal investigation with the Capitol Police. Maybe you bring in law enforcement experts, experts outside group, to do a, an investigation on what happened with the Capitol Police. That would be the investigation because you don't want it to happen again. They're just trying to make political points, and they're going to fail, by the way. Here's what they're trying to do. They're trying to say, everybody, stop worrying about these three things. Stop worrying about inflation. Stop worrying about gas prices, the economy. I'm putting... All those three things into two categories. I guess inflation and gas prices are the same thing. The economy more generally. And crime. Stop worrying about that. They went through a period of saying, worry about abortion. It's a big deal. And the American people said, I, I can't get gas in my car. So they went, uh, here's Matthew McConaughey on guns. Will you guys care about that? And the American people said, um, I'm having tr- trouble just getting enough food for my family and the budget I currently have, things are 50% more expensive sometimes than the things I want to buy to feed my family. Can we talk about that? And then they come back and say, well, you remember January 6th? It was really, really bad. And then a bunch of American people saying, um, every time I turn on the TV, there's more murder and lots of robberies. Could you guys do something about that? And so for all of their effort to distract and get political points off of this, I laugh at them because, one, they're not serious people. They are laughable, immature people. But second, I laugh because it's not going to work. The rest of us are living very real lives and seeing the effects of what you do in your policy. And therefore, you can't distract us with your shiny congressional hearing. All right. If you have feedback, Show at gmail.com. Find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I'll be back with another new edition of The Corey Truax Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.